coffee isn't just a drink, it's who you are. We are Little Green Hive, and we're here to serve that perfect cup of coffee made just for you. We're women-owned and locally sourced. Our mission is to provide the best product for our customers, as well as strengthen our community. From fair trade coffees and teas, to breakfast, lunch, and smoothies, we have everything you need to start your day off right. Come visit us in downtown Roanoke, Grandin Village, and now at the Daleville Town Center, Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Hey, thanks so much for listening to Hometown Stories. It means a lot to us. If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you shared us with a friend, left us a review, or subscribed to Hometown Stories. That way, you basically get first dibs as soon as we release a new episode. You can also email us at hometownstories at wdbj7.com. We'd love to hear your hometown story. Okay, now let's get back to the episode. In 1948, a man was arrested and fined $5 for refusing to sit in the colored section of a train. That man happened to be Virginia's first black Olympic gold medalist, a boxer, and a Tuskegee Airman. And I did some research, and really the rest is history. It set me on a journey of a lifetime. The Olympians' fight in the ring and the courtroom is being recognized decades after his death in brand new ways. You know, I think it's critically important because that has often been an overlooked or neglected history, particularly here in Western Virginia. In this episode of Hometown Stories, we highlight Black history here at home, the story of Norval Lee. He was a big man with big stories, but it wasn't until you hear from other people that you realize how big, you know? So my question is, how did you find Norval? Or should I say, how did Norval find you? Oh, that's a great question. On a chilly but sunny afternoon, I meet Ken Conklin just outside of a small church in Eagle Rock, Virginia. This small community of Gala is tucked away off the main road through rural Botetourt County. The rising Mount Zion Baptist Church in front of us is where Norval Lee's story begins. And this church was the center of their community life here. Ken knows Norval's story well, from his earliest years worshiping in this church to his death in 1992 and the incredible life in between. Whenever I, I come up here, I've been up here several times now, it feels like somehow I've got connected with, with him and his family and his life. In 2016, the Fincastle Herald, a Botetourt community newspaper, published a story to coincide with the Rio Olympics. It was about Norval Lee. Ken says a couple in the Gala area originally brought the story to a woman named Judy Barnett at the Botetourt County Historical Society. With her late brother's help and the help of the countywide league, Judy documented much of the African-American history of the county. She brought Norville's story to Ed McCoy at the Herald, who took it to print. My wife planted it in front of me, and I read the story, and I was just curious on how that went, why we didn't know about the story, and, and I did some research, and really the rest is history. It set me on a journey of a lifetime. After he read that article, Ken got online. 
He didn't find much, but a couple of pages into his Google search, he found something. There was sparse information on there, but I did find a blog called Boxing Along the Beltway. And it was a boxing blog from Washington, D.C. And in 2012, there was a blog posted about boxers from the past. And I found something on Norville there. One commenter thanked the writer for the blog, but pointed out some factual errors about Norville's life. And so I immediately saw that she had an email, and I was just so curious about more about that. So I emailed her, and she and I connected. The commenter was one of Norville Lee's granddaughters, Darren. Ken reached out, and the two of them emailed back and forth for a while. Then she invited Ken and his wife to Maryland for a visit. We met at Norville Lee's sister-in-law's uh, house. We sat there a long time and they pulled out artifacts, artifacts after artifacts, his boxing silks, his commendations, his uh, college degrees, his newspaper articles. They had them all in boxes there. And I thought, this is a story. This is an entire book. Norval Lee was born in September of 1924 to parents James and Georgiana Lee. His early life centered around that church, family, and work on the farms or the railroad. Social visits to family brought him to nearby Clifton Forge in Covington. Now, Norville's mom was adamant that her four children be well-educated. He attended what was then known as the Academy Hill School for Negroes in Fincastle, and by all accounts, he was an excellent student. His teachers marked his good grades, and they also marked his stammer. And when I went over his school records here in Botetourt County, I went to the Botetourt County School Board, and they pulled out these archival records from the Jim Crow era. And they're very, very neatly kept. They're, these are treasures in themselves. And so I looked at it, and all through Norval's little records were, uh, they mentioned his stammer. So this is something that he had his entire life. The several people that I uh, interviewed that knew him said that's almost the first thing that they said about him. The very first words was, well, you know, he had this stammer. But it was, uh, everyone was so used to it, it was like a, almost a lovable thing about it. He just had trouble getting his words out, especially when he got excited. After graduating, Norville set out to serve his country during World War II. Ken says Norville trained to be a Tuskegee Airman, but it was that stammer that kept him from flight in the theater of war, and he instead served with the ground crew in the South Pacific. At war's end, Norville enrolled at Howard, the prominent and prestigious historically black university in Washington, D.C. It was while he was here that Norville learned about life in the ring. Took up boxing as more of a physical exercise, and he excelled at it and soon became the dominant heavyweight champion on the, the East Coast, made the 1948 Olympic team, and went to London and was an alternate on that team. After the Olympics, Norville came home to visit with family and presumably tell them all about his experience abroad. On September 13, 1948, he hopped on the Chesapeake, Ohio train number 310 in Clifton Forge, headed for Covington. According to court records, Norville took his seat in the whites-only section of the train car. The conductor noticed and asked him to move. Norville stayed in his seat until he reached Covington. The next day, Norville bought a ticket from Covington back to Clifton Forge, boarded the 310, and again sat in the whites-only section. The conductor recognized him. Once again, when asked to move, Norville refused. 
the sheriff of Allegheny County was called over. That's when Norville got off the train and bought another ticket. This one from Covington to Washington, D.C. He got back on the train, sat back down in the whites-only section, and was immediately arrested, charged with violating the segregation law of the state of Virginia against the peace and dignity of the Commonwealth of Virginia. At his trial, Norville was found guilty of breaking the law in order to pay a $5 fine. He appealed, pleaded not guilty, and waived his rights to a trial by jury. A trial judge found him guilty and sentenced him to pay a fine of $25. But his case wouldn't end there. It was one of those things that was always right in front of us, but you don't see it. This is Danielle Anderson, another one of Norval Lee's granddaughters. We, you know, we can read about what he was like as a boxer, uh, you know, or what he was like as a mentor, but what was he like as a grandpa? <laughs> he was great. He was a lot of fun. Um, sometimes he could be really silly. <laughs> he was um, stern when he needed to be, but he, he took really good care of us. Danielle said she and her sister lived with her grandfather until his passing, around the time she was in fourth grade. She remembers a lot, though. She said he would take them on vacations or even bring them around town. They hosted a lot of events at their house, and she called her grandfather a prominent figure. She knew he was an accomplished man, but didn't really know how accomplished he was until later in life. He was a big man with big stories, but it wasn't until you hear from other people that you realize how big, you know? After the London Olympics and his brush with the law in Allegheny County, Norville got back to work with his studies in boxing. Meanwhile, the NAACP got to work on his case. Their lawyer sent his appeal all the way to the Supreme Court of Virginia, where in 1949, his conviction was overturned on the grounds that the state could not enforce segregation laws on a local train if a passenger held a ticket for interstate travel. Ken Conklin traveled to the Library of Congress to learn more about the case. He shuffled through NAACP documents and court documents, trying to learn more about why Norville would push so hard for an appeal. I mean, the, the entire civil rights case surprised me because it didn't, it seemed inconsistent with his personality to, to cause, you know, a, a ruckus or any kind of uh, problem like that. He was always going on to the next thing. He may have found his answer in the transcript of Norville's case. There was, it appeared to be a tense moment in the testimony that was going back and forth. And Norval Lee looked at the, the prosecutor when the prosecutor asked him why he did that. Why did he not follow the instructions? And he just looked at him and he said, I didn't think that was necessary. That, that statement says a lot about him. It's not confrontational. It's very simple, but it's very impactful. That was him. How do those words resonate with you today? Accurate. <laughs> I think it's very accurate to, like I said, to who my grandfather was. He didn't speak a lot for several reasons, but he usually didn't have to say much to make an impact. There were articles about that case in a scrapbook that we had, and it wasn't until I would say maybe 10 years ago that we actually read it and knew what it was. At the same time, it wasn't surprising because he was a man who stood on principle and he didn't care for the attention. That's not what it was about. It wasn't about 
uh, a movement. It was about doing what was right. And he felt like he was doing what was right because he had been wronged as a person. So it is honorable and it is an honor to, to know that my grandfather did that and stood up for himself and basically sparked a lot of things in that time without maybe without knowing it. But again, it's not a surprise that he did it. And knowing why makes it all the more a blessing, I would say. Life after the case continued to put Norville on the up and up. For three years in a row, he earned the National Golden Gloves titles and competed twice in the Pan American Games. He was also a national AAU champ, and he once again set his sights on Olympic trials. The year 1952 led him to the Helsinki Olympics, and not as an alternate this time. He competed against France first, handily winning all three rounds. Up next was Poland, another 3-0 match. and the semifinal, Norval dominated the hometown pick, beating the Finnish native at every round. And finally, Norval went up against Argentina's Antonio Pisenza, winning every single round. Norval won gold for the United States in the light heavyweight division. Not only that, but he also won the Val Barker Trophy, the award given to the best boxer in all divisions. But that medal made him the first Black Virginian to win gold. So what did Norval do after this enormous win? He went back to school. He got married. He graduated. And he got a job. He was 27 years old by the time he won his uh, Olympic gold medal. And education was always his most important factor. By then, he was also an officer in the U.S. Air Force Reserves. And so he had that career going. He was married at the time. And he was offered, I believe it was $10,000, which was a lot of money in those days, to go pro. For the record, online inflation calculators tell me that that would be equal to more than $100,000 in today's money. But he didn't think that that was the right thing to do. He famously said, I want to make an honest dollar. And that was a a quote from one of the newspaper articles. His bride was Leslie Jackson of Leesburg, Virginia. They got married on Howard's campus. The family has a lovely black and white photo of her on her wedding day with long lace sleeves and the veil down her back and a really relaxed smile on her face. Other sepia photos show Leslie and Norval with his sister Edna, Norval's arms around both of them, all smiles for the camera. Norval got his first job at the National Training School for Boys, an educational institute for juvenile delinquents. It was there that Norval befriended a couple of guys who made a lunchtime game of pinochle their tradition. Even though they all moved on to different jobs, they continued this tradition for more than 40 years. Norville's granddaughter, Darren, helped Ken track one of those guys down. So I drove up to D.C. He lived right outside of uh, the northern part of Washington, D.C. And we, we went up there, and Darren and I sat down with 85-year-old Mike Mahalik. And we sat there and had this great conversation. I wanted to know what he knew about Norville. I said, I mentioned the civil rights case. Uh, Norville had never told him about it. I'm the one that told Mike Mahalik about the civil rights case all those years. 
And that was typical of Norval. He always went on to the next thing. He was not a bragger. He was not, he was just always went on to the next thing. Norval continued to be active in boxing. His obituary in the Washington Post notes that he chaired the D.C. Boxing Commission during the 60s and served as its chief judge. He was a member of the D.C. Boxing Hall of Fame and the executive committee of the World Boxing Association. He went to inaugural balls. There's even a picture of him at the White House with President Eisenhower. He went on a goodwill trip to Mali. He held a number of titles in the education sector and in the 80s retired as a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force Reserve. But among his greatest contributions to his community was being a mentor for countless young men. I want for people to see that even then, even, you know, in the rural South under, you know, Jim Crow conditions that with a speech impediment and, you know, maybe some physical challenges that if things were possible then, imagine what you could do now. Norval Lee died from cancer in 1992 at age 67. The story actually pulled me along. The story screamed at me. The search for more pieces of Norval's story brought Ken all over the East Coast and even to California to meet the daughter of one of Norval's boxing peers, John Boudelier. While his personal curiosities were satisfied, Ken knew there was more to do. He wanted more people to know about this extraordinary man from a small rural Botetourt town. So Ken did what he was used to doing. He wrote. And in 2020, he published his first book titled Norval. It's been it it's been life changing. It it has it was completely unexpected. I wrote the book. I've done a lot of writing in my life, and this story is still a big part of what goes on every day in my life. So I'd love, and and really the main thing is to get the story out there. I'd like to have a wider audience know the story. I think it's an important story to know that there's people out there that have done great things that uh, didn't let whatever was going on in life stop them from doing that. Other people in the community thought this was an important story too. From civil rights to Olympian to educator, coach, uh, I mean, it, it's a pretty well-lived life. I met Pastor Nelson Harris in his office at the Heights Community Church in Roanoke City. Harris served as Roanoke's mayor for a time, and he's a local historian with several books to his name. The renewed attention to Norville's story generated community discussion and even newspaper editorials, acknowledging the lack of recognition locally for Norville's contributions. Kudos to Ken Conklin for kind of capturing that and really bringing a renaissance of interest in Norvell Lee that may not have happened without his research and putting all that together in his book. Nelson wanted to do what he could to contribute to the Renaissance. He got to work drafting a proposal to the Virginia Department of Historic Resources for a historical marker for Norval. Historic markers not only 
uh, commemorate history, but they become a tool of educating the general public on the history that is right around them. In December of 2021, the marker was approved and also got the thumbs up from Botetourt County. It's set to be placed near Norville's hometown. Well, I hope that it will tell his story uh, to a larger audience. I hope that it will allow especially the people in Botetourt County to realize they have a, a native son that did tremendous things. It's these stories, the history and successes of Black Virginians, that Nelson believes need to get the nod they're owed. Well, I think it's you know I think it's critically important because that has often been an overlooked or neglected history, uh, particularly here in Western Virginia. And so, the way I look at it with these historic markers, uh, we're playing a little bit of catch up. Uh, and uh, these probably should have been put up, you know, years ago. Delegate from Botata, Delegate Austin. Mr. Speaker, House Bill 1363. During the regular session held by the General Assembly, Delegate Terry Austin brought forth a bill that would designate a portion of Route 220 in Botata County as the Norville La Follette Ray Lee Memorial Highway. The General Assembly voted unanimously to approve it and it now awaits the governor's signature. It's the recognition Norville never saw in life, but the kind that Ken believes is never too late. So I think it's a, an example to, to anybody that's facing obstacles that they can, you know, you can just keep moving forward. Ken's book, Norville, is available in bookstores local to Roanoke, and you can also buy a copy online. It's a fictionalized account of Norville's life, but heavily based on the enormous amount of research Ken has conducted. You can see more about Ken's journey to write the book on his website, kennethfconklin.com. Stories is a production of WDBJ7 in Roanoke, Virginia. The story was produced by me, Leanna Scacchetti, and edited by Ben Raquelmi. We'll see you next time. Hometown Stories is sponsored by Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Locations in downtown Roanoke, Daleville, and Grandin.